I'm going to present the mission a little bit to introduce it to our listeners. The mission of the Amos Lemon Burkhardt Foundation is to sustain and promote the legacy of your son, the artist Amos Lemon Burkhardt, and to create a new conversation about creativity, addictions, mental illness, and in order to help young artists stay alive and make art. What a beautiful line. What a beautiful line. The foundation provides financial and psychological support through various endowed funds. What is an endowed fund? So that means that the money stays in a bank and grows each year, and then it throws off an interest each year so that the amount of the overall amount of money keeps growing and so that the scholarships can get bigger and bigger. Okay. So I think oh, right now we have something like $230,000 in the fund and that mm-hmm. generates about something like $8,000 a year in scholarships. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about that is you don't have to keep putting money in and spending it every year. It will just grow and grow and grow and grow. And hey, very sustainable and honorable financial system. Yeah, providing there's not a financial apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Hope. (laughs) We can only hope because the signs are there and they're not really favorable. But even if there is something like a financial chaos, artists will go on. We don't need money to create, but we need money to live, to learn and to help in the promotion of our work and of our visibility, and also to help with sustenance of our beautiful physical apparatuses. And I wanted to ask you why it's important to have that conversation about creativity and mental well-being and healthy living. Why does it matter? I think I always say that, you know, it's kind of a an unspoken but overheard message from society that the, the prevailing wind, I, I like to say, is that, you know, young people hear things like, if you become an artist, you're going to be a starving artist, you're going to be, you know, crazy and live in a garret, and you're going to <laughs> off your ear, and you're going to you know, die by the age of 27. And you have to be, you know, you have to have a dramatic death and a dramatic mental illness for people to notice you. And all of these kind of really like dangerous myths that are that are also wrong. I don't believe that they, you know, I don't think that suffering is necessary in order to produce great art. And so the message that you have to suffer and that you're, you know, you're going to be a societal outcast in some way or other, I think is a is a crazy, you know, fallacy. But I also feel there's an interesting tension there because even though I would not say that creativity is a form of mental illness, <laughs> I would definitely say that people that think differently, which you know, now thank God that we have this new term of neuro differences, right? People that have different ways of thinking. And so, you know, some of if people that think the same way as everybody else generally don't stand out and, and, you know, get noticed. And so the true artist that is doing something that nobody's ever thought of or tried before is definitely coming at it from some kind of an out outside the mainstream thinking. So it's easy for people to classify that as being, you know, strange, crazy on some kind of spectrum of mental illness. And, and I do think that people who are incredibly obsessed by their work, whether their work is, you know, growing tomatoes or making paintings or writing poems, 
if there's somebody that is so consumed by their process and their, their work that they really, really want to excel at it, you could call, you know, every Olympic athlete maybe is mentally ill by that standard because all they do is their one thing and they're completely consumed by it. And that's how they build their, their mastery and expertise. So something about that, that whole area, I, I find that it's really fascinating. It's like both mental illness and creativity take place in the brain and so we, that's the machine that we have. And so how do we keep that machine in tune to be able to allow the creativity to work without, you know, ending up with the suffering part? Yes. yes. And are they inextricably linked or not? It's just like an area that's always been fascinating to me. Yes. And I know that I saw my son suffering and, you know, I'm not sure if his creativity was intertwined with his suffering but he was creative long before the suffering started. Yes. So I don't know. And he was definitely a, a different thinker. He was a, he was a polymath. He was an outside of the box, interesting, mm-hmm. you know, view on the world since he was two and could speak. I think that's, you know, how we arrived in this area. And, yeah. and of course, you know, he, when he passed away, it was such a complicated scenario. Like he had been in, treatment for only about a year. He'd really only been in extreme distress for about a year and a half when from the age of 17 is when things kind of went sideways for him. And he had a lot of trouble going, you know, to therapy and going to treatment, disentangling what are normal concerns of adolescence, what are normal concerns of creative people, what is mental illness? What is, you know, they, they diagnosed him as being emotionally labile, which is something I had to look up. I never heard of that before, but that just means a person who experiences extreme emotions. Yes. And I would agree with that diagnosis. So, you know, it was, and plus then he had substance issues on top of that. And I'm sure that he was medicating some of his anxiety, some of his, you know, uh, mental overload kind of. So anyway, it was a, he was like a ball of yarn and it was very hard to unpick what exactly was going on. And, but he was making progress. And then unfortunately, Uh you know, he was just one of those people for whom drugs and alcohol are very toxic. And it seems like we don't exactly know what happened, but he just took too many Xanax. He lost track. I mean, he shouldn't have taken any at all because he was not prescribed any Xanax. But the combination of alcohol and Xanax and pot, he probably just became unconscious somehow and fell asleep in the beach on the beach and the tide came in and he drowned. Mm -hmm. So even his death was sort of complicated and in between and, you know, a mix of ball of yarn from different threads. Yes. Thank you for sharing that with us because it's intense, of course, and it's your life and Amos continues to live within you and and to live in his artwork. But what you talked about resonates so much with me. And it's also the reason why we talked about this already when it wasn't recorded. It's, that's the reason why I created Revue Révolution and the Polymath Agency with Maria, because we realized it was time for us to find ourselves within, but also without to have reflections of ourselves because what causes an artist or a poet or a multi-talented or multi-sensitive being to consume substances and people is the inability to mirror themselves. 
if you cannot recognize yourself around you, if you, the people who surround you are, you know, if there's a, like a big gap between who you are within and who they are or who they appear to be, then you're going to feel isolated and alone. And this will heighten your emotional sensitivity, which is already intense. It's already above, you know, the normal levels in an artist. So, and this emotional liability, I didn't know the, the word either. Thank you for this. And so the other solution that you have when you, you don't have others supporting you and let you know, hey, you know, you're just like you. You have the right to be like that. And there's a way out. We've been there and we're going to help you. If you don't have that, the next best thing is substances and being entangled with all kinds of people who are not going to help you because they are they cannot understand what you're going through. So it's like what you said, a kind of circle, mysterious and very subtle, and most people don't get it. The way I describe it is artists are unconventional because they create. But most humans are conventional. They live conventional lives because they consume. They consume. And it's not derogative. It's just an observation. It's a fact. You know, in percentage, how many creatives are there on this planet? You know, I, I asked this question to my husband who is a statistician, and he doesn't know. But he, he looked at me and said, come on, what is this question? Is it serious? <laughs> no. You know we're not that much on the planet. So some of us are more sensitive to, to that. And some of us, the way you described Amos a little while ago, it, you know, it created something within me because you reminded me of something I read in the interview, the BCTV interview, when you said that it could translate 3D into 2D, 2D into 3D. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so these people, I mean, artists are like shapeshifters, but they are even beyond shapeshifting because they master shape, you know, the very essence of shape. So doing something like that is just incredible. And other people, they want you, but at the same time, they don't want you because it's too much for them. It's too much to handle for them. It's like artists reflect back to non-creators what they could have been, what they could be. And yeah, I mean, something has to be done with it. So either on a very passive way, the community forces the artist to destroy himself or herself, or the artist is going to find a way out. And the way out can be creative regression, like you stop, you don't create anymore. Or it can be, if you're lucky, you find your people. And we want, we want artists to find their people because the purpose of art is to become a polymath. We don't do that just because it's fun. We do that because we know there is a superior knowledge, a superior form of knowledge, and we are wired for it. So what you do is wonderful. Maria said it in the beginning. I'm going to say it again. We are so humbled and so in admiration about what you do. And we want you to be known and we want your mission to be known and people to know your name and the name of Amos was a magnificent artist. You know, so many artists that struggle and they, they don't have the strength to tell the world, you know, that, that they've been through something hard and uh, bullying and all this, how do you say, what does the name of the sickness that they say, which is hypersensibility that all the artists have, like kind of, we have so everything that we we see wrong and good so 
I don't know, like sometimes you get overwhelmed with a children movie or you see somebody crying on the street and you cry yourself and uh, they have called me stupid. They have uh, they have called me <clears throat> naive. They have called me childish. But what can you do? You can't you can do nothing against it. And it, for me, it's been very hard to go like this. Very, very hard. That's why when I read the story of Amos, I felt so, I think God helped me because I don't know how they, that, did I survive all this. But people really, really, really cruel. When they don't know how to do something, the first thing they do is to attack you because you're different. And it doesn't mean that being different is being bad. Because what would they do without art and design? They would die with boredom, you know. They need artists to create and they need, Artists to try, visually try with new things like, like Amos painted and the wildfire. I was telling Muriel, I could spend like one week looking at one painting because they are so complex. That is poetry, geometry, everything, bodies coming out from bodies. He talks about reincarnation. He talks about rebirth. He talks about food. That is a million things in one, in one painting. The common people they need this to try, not the TV and the silly magazines, magazines, you know. They need to see different things and that because it's like another world. It's so special. When you create, you have the power to create another universe, another world and things that don't exist. How powerful is that? They should respect artists or that. Absolutely. He had a, it's funny because he had a, a series called Alternate Planet Part One and Alternate Planet Part Two. <laughs> so, you know, and, and some of his, for a while he was in this, he went through a bunch of different phases, which was interesting. You could see that he was, when you line up his work in a chronological order, you can kind of see as he was like teaching himself or pushing himself to the next level, to the next, you know, assignment, to the next, to the next, you know, phase, school, whatever it was, he was going through different thinking. And one series was, we call them the thin people. I don't know, he called them emaciated. And so they're like really long skeletal. (laughs) Really feel like aliens from another planet. So there's one that's a pair of them. And we, we jokingly refer to them as his actual parents from his home planet. (laughs) 